0: Welcome to Haunted Hospitality,
1: Southern Stories Told by Spooky Gingers. I'm Robin. And I'm Zoe, and I have a story for you guys today. But first, Robin, how is life? Life is good.
0: I guess now I'll actually talk about the trip I took oh, uh, yeah. versus the spooky things that happened. <laughs> um, it was really fun. We went to this state park area that actually has been featured... Not really, but kind of on this channel before, because that's where I got leeches. Oh, yes. Yes. I
1: remember. Well, yes.
0: So it's a river area where you can walk on the rocks, just slip and slide with your little butt down rapids and stuff. And then when you know when you're done, pull all the leeches off of you. Yeah, just you're feeding nature. You are feeding nature your blood. So, <laughs> so um, I will say I, you know, have a bad description of it but it was really fun the first time i think of it as like an adult playground um that was two years ago Uh last year we were about to leave for it when i broke my leg and this year i told everybody i am not walking on slippery river walks yeah (laughs) i do not have the balance for it um but there is a little pool area where you can swim earlier in the year than we usually go to West Virginia. So instead of a summer trip, it was more of a late spring trip. And West Virginia is more north and it's in the mountains. So we tried to go on the warmest day. We actually tried to go swing twice on the warmest day. Freezing. We walked into the water. Ice. I I was a little bit later going into the water than everybody else. My friend's boyfriend walked out of the water and he was like, It's icy and he didn't come back in. And so we just swam in the freezing cold water for an hour hour and two and then later in the week we tried going on what we thought would be the warmest possible day to a wave pool cold icy icy um in theory it should be fun to swim i mean i had a good time i had a good time yeah however my body was a tense shivering machine
1: yeah, how did your new bionicle leg like the cold water?
0: Actually, okay, so when I was first entering, and this happened both times, I swear to you, that leg, like that knee, it was cold on both, but that knee felt colder. Because mm-hmm. like metal, etc. I don't know. Um, And I was like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. But when I go in and like I dunked my head under the water or actually my friend lovingly kind of pushed me forward (laughs) I asked her to um (laughs) anyway at that point when my one of my body finally got acclimated to it actually my leg did really good because it was water and I hadn't been through any sort of water therapy but my leg was much more flexible I was able to actually do a lot of like movements with it. it was actually quite fun because I hadn't like felt that capable and so i think like maybe i should i don't know join a place that has a pool like a gym or something and like kick around some because that would just be like kind of like strength training for me
1: yeah i know um last year before the accident ba mm-hmm. um we, B-A. <laughs> ba um A-A is after the accident <laughs>
0: okay B-B-A, yeah yeah
1: ba uh we had actually planned to go to my pool Well, my pool, my apartment complex's pool together, but then like it ended up being closed to for repairs. And then it was AA and you weren't going in a pool anytime soon.
0: No, No, I can go into pools now.
1: Yay. So we can do that sometime now that you can grace your my abode with your presence.
0: I can now grace your abode
1: with my presence. Yes, you're right. Um, But that's my life. Zoe, how's your life? Well, while you were having fun on your trip, you Mm -hmm. said, no, I cannot go to the super cool event with you, Zoe. And so so I went with another friend, Haley. Mm -hmm. Um, She has just like like, Haley. I mean, at this point, the (laughs) listeners know Haley. So I went with another friend and it was actually like super cool. So we went and at first we were actually expecting tables, but there weren't any tables. Um, It was just like rows of chairs and it was like super spooky. I loved it. They had like skulls and weird lighting and all this fun stuff. And then there were two women who were dressed up in all black, of course, and they alternated telling four different spooky stories. And, of course, they were saying, oh, the the driveway that you're parked in, or the parking lot that you're parked in, that was the site of this story. And they're like, oh, right down the road, that was the site of this story. And, I mean, they tore all throughout the United States. So, no, it's not. <laughs> but... <laughs> It was funny. Um, mm-hmm. There was one time where um, they were t- sit. One of the women were like, oh, she started speaking in witch's tongue. Ooga booga, mocha cappuccino. Oh, my God. <laughs> so it was it was really funny. It was really spooky. I held hands with a stranger. <laughs> oh, that's great. Because we did a little fake seance. Mm-hmm. So the drinks that we got were themed with the stories. Oh, fun. Yeah. So there was like one where it, I mean, it was loosely themed, but like there was one about like a medical assistant was married to the doctor and he started cheating on her. And so he burnt, she burned down the entire building. And the drink mm-hmm. we were drinking was a blood bag filled, like a fake <laughs> blood bag filled with like a pomegranate vodka drink.
0: I, Love this experience for you because that that
1: it is an experience. It it's an experience, like. and the funniest thing is like, <laughs> so between the third and the fourth drinks slash stories, mm-hmm. um, yes. the cops showed up, and why? And um, <laughs> it's because they were asking if they had a liquor license, which is the second show in a row I've mentioned a liquor license and how yes. strict South Carolina is about it. Did they have a liquor license? No, they didn't. (gasps) So that's why the cops showed up. But in South Carolina, if you're giving the alcohol away for free, then you don't need a liquor license. And so what they said was that we paid to see the show and they were giving us the drinks for free. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. And so the Uh cops went away, but I was like near a stairwell. And like, there was just this one cop. I'll show you the videos later, Robin. But there is just just one cop at the top of the stairwell and it's completely dark behind him. And there's one light and he's just standing there. Like ominously, you know, and it's just like, dude, what's your problem? Why are you just sitting there staring at us?
0: You were in, like, a haunted speakeasy situation. Yeah, basically. You were, like, underground. <laughs> it was okay. downstairs. It was downstairs? Yes.
1: I love that. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And, okay, like, don't judge me for saying this, but, like, I was expecting a lot of people like myself. I was expecting a lot of people who are more of the spooky crowd, uh-huh. There were a lot of normies there. Normies. Like there was Kevin and Karen and Bob and Sally Sue sitting there in their Sunday best, sipping on the drinks and looking at each other while we were summoning the ghost of the dead. You know, like You summoned the ghost of the dead? Yeah, our little fake séance. Was it fake? Okay, there was a little bell device that happened to ring with co- comedic timing.
0: I'm, like, so jealous now. I so wish I you
1: could. You should have come up. No, I'm kidding. I knew you had pre-planned. Sorry, West
0: Virginia. I can't do it.
1: Well, that sounds really, really fun, Zoe. It was fun, but that's my life update. Do you have something something for us?
0: I do. I do. I'm going to tell you about the body farm
1: in Knoxville, Tennessee. Yes. I love, okay, so I'm sorry, I know I always bring things back to this, but the first time I found out that body farms existed was on an episode of Bones.
0: I should have just assumed you already knew what this was. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to describe it as if you don't. That's okay? fine, that's fine. Okay, Um, it is, this one in particular is officially called the Forensic Anthropology Center And it is a part of the University of Texas, but most people tend to call it the body farm, along with other farms, lands of this type. This one is relatively small, just 2.4 acres. And it features, I don't know how to put this, people volunteer to be buried there. Mm Mm-hmm. And they are buried there in different situations so that researchers can study what happens to the bodies as they decompose. And so law enforcement groups can train for when they need to excavate uh, potential victims. So the FBI evidence recovery team actually trains here for um, five days. And I think I saw something that said it's every year, but I'm not completely sure. and. They train on how to find graves in the wild. So they go out there and they're not told where it is. They, part of the training is to find signs that the ground has been tampered with. And so what they do is, I watched a video on how they did it. And thankfully somebody was explaining it because I wouldn't have quite gotten it. Mm -hmm. They map out the edges of where they think the grave is. And they go in there and they work on recovering the human remains and they also are trained on how to document the evidence from the area because some of the things, like it's very t- tactile, it's hard to tell what is bone versus a rock fragment because it can all be very similar especially with how long I guess it's probably been decomposing so it's a very real world way of determining these things and what they do is when they map out where they think the body is they then start removing thin layers of soil like one layer at a time and they put it through this sifter and they go through and they see if there's any evidence including bullets like I didn't see them say that they put bullets in there, but I think that must be part of what they do. They see if there's any bullets, anything in that level of soil. And it's important not just to see what is in the grave, but where it is in the grave. Because they were saying it tells a story about what happened to this person. They go through all the layers, and when they get to a point where they know where the skeleton is, they work on digging up the soil around the skeleton. So that they're not actually like digging up and like, okay, well, let's, you know, remove the head now. So they go (laughs) in so that they can see the skeleton fully, like from multiple sides as it was laid down, but without like dislodging it from the soil just yet so they can mark all the things. And then when they do eventually remove the remains, they dig under it. I think the person on the video said another 20 centimeters just to see if there's any evidence, bullets, etc., that had drifted down further from the body. So in this body farm in particular, five women are in charge of it. All of them are forensic anthropologists. And I don't really know the story behind all these, but they had apparently helped police in, I think, a couple instances at least, identify victims. And I'm not exactly sure how they did it, but go look that up. Women <laughs> in STEM, Women in STEM, yes, it's absolutely true. So people get donated to this place before they take you. They have to make sure that like you don't have COVID nineteen. Okay, and I think they also test for other infectious diseases before they'll take you because you know you have to make it safe for them and safe for the people who are training and studying there. And just so you know, as of twenty ten, I don't know more recent statistic. There are five body farms in the country, four of which are in the south. These are in Tennessee, North Carolina, and Texas, and there is one that was started in 2010 or was built in 2010 in Pennsylvania. And it's actually key to have these body farms in different areas because different climates, I think different soil types, will really affect how they're decomposing. So it will affect, like, a body decomposing in Knoxville, Tennessee, will probably look different at different stages than one decomposing in like california for instance so probably should expand a little bit further out but that's what we got so far at least out of 2010 but that's body farms and you know about this from bones
1: yeah and also morbid curiosity on the internet but yes um there's i don't know if that specific body farm does it but there are body farms that will Like, take your body and leave it on a giant metal slat and just record how long it takes for various things to progress, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, like, it's not all just burying it. It's also like they'll put it in a vat of chlorine or something like that Mm -hmm. just to see how it affects the body. That way, in forensic cases, if they were out in the wild to put it in a weird way um and they found a body and they had to figure out how long was this body here okay it was in 2% chlorine based off of this we know that it dissolved in x amount of time you know so they are mm-hmm. able to determine how quickly the body decomposes like that and also did you know that there is one very easy way to determine whether you have a rock in your hand or a bone in your hand
0: I don't know it. What
1: is it? You lick it. If you lick it and it sticks to your tongue, it's a bone. Because bones are porous and rocks are not. Part of me knew
0: that from, like, some archaeology thing. But for some reason, I can handle thinking of it with old bones. Uh Uh-huh. But I can't think of it with relatively new
1: bones. Like, I can think of it with, like, animal bones. Just not human bones.
0: Well... Zoe, once again, you know more than I do.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, well, I covered you. a topic you had previously covered, so like,
0: yeah. I, Part of me was a little bit scared when I chose this. I was like, has Zoe talked about this? And I, you, you hadn't. I, um, but I, it does it did seem like something you would cover and that you would know about. <laughs> would you? Do?
1: Yes. Okay. So, do you have a story for us today? I do. Okay. And this story is, I would argue, well, no, that's not the right word. I was not able to find any other podcasts that covered this story. So this was a relatively small story and it is a true crime story. Mm -hmm. And I actually have a personal connection to it. Okay. But I will get to it in a minute. Well, a very few long minutes. So, (laughs) just real quick trigger warning for suicide, arguable homophobia, and sexual assault. Okay. So, I'm going to tell you the story of Walter Walt Davis. So, Walt had a rough life from the time he was little. When he was eight years old, he lived in Indiana and he had gone to church one morning with a family friend. And after church, they drove him home, dropped him off at the driveway and left. And he went inside and he found the bodies of his parents where his father had killed his mother and then died by suicide. So he it was not a very pretty scene because his mother had fought back. And so he was kind of emotionally traumatized from that moving forward he had a cousin named Pete Whitlock, who was five at the time, and he ended up moving in with that cousin. And that cousin grew up more like a brother to him. And we get a lot of his personal and family background information from Pete. Mm-hmm. So, Pete and his family lived in Spartanburg, South Carolina. And Walt's entire life basically started anew at eight years old. Now in this new town, he doesn't know anyone. Nobody knows him. And he decides to dedicate his life to avoiding violence and anger because he doesn't want to turn out like his dad. Mm -hmm. So he goes to the governor's school for arts in Columbia. He was a national merit finalist. He served as a page at the SC State House during the summers and he taught himself how to play the piano. And then he got into USC Honors College and he pursued a degree in chemical engineering. However, after his first year, he dropped out and then he moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And he lived there for 10 years before he moved to Bat Cave, North Carolina. And there he bought the Old Mill Inn, and he ran it as a bed and breakfast with his boyfriend and life partner, Dennis. Mm-hmm. So all the locals loved him. He was a perfect host, and he seemed to love his job. He would keep scrapbooks of all of his guests, like every single one. And he would put little state flags next to their name that was like the state that they came from. And... Mm-hmm. He would just keep it in his little scrap scrapbook. Don't oh, worry. For a second
0: I thought you were saying that he made a scrapbook for each one. And oh, I no, was no. like,
1: Ooh. No, okay. Of each one. Okay. <laughs> well, one scrapbook has a page and for each guest. In there. Yes. Okay. That's good. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, we like Walt. I'm I, I don't yeah,
0: know. I was I was getting that sense. At, I was getting that sense.
1: Yeah, I was like, oh, usually when I start with, like, a troubled childhood, it usually is I'm talking about the killer. Mm-hmm. But no, in this case, we're talking about, unfortunately, the victim. Okay. Yeah. Pete, his cousin, who was raised like the brother, he said that, quote, he wanted other people to have a good time. He really did. He was a very giving person. He would spend 30 minutes to an hour explaining to some tourist... How to go to this perfect spot to see this perfect thing that was only going to happen so often. Well, it was the life of the party. He liked to water ski. He liked to hike and he liked to explore. However, when Dennis, his life partner, passed, he sold the inn because he just felt like he couldn't run it without him.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And he left it after 17 years there. And he became a server at a local, another local inn. And he bought a cabin on a quiet creek. And it was this cute little peaceful area. And from his back porch, you could see the creek running through and then it turns into a river. One day in 2012, Walt saw a man walking along the road. The man didn't look well. He appeared homeless And so Walt, being giving to a fault, pulls over on the side of the road and asks him, hey, what's your name? What's your story? What's going on? So he learns that this man's name is Daniel Moore. He's in his 20s. I think it was 28, 29. And he had nowhere to stay. So Mm -hmm. Walt said, I have a couple spare bedrooms Come stay with me until you can get back on your feet and I'll see. I'll help you get, you know, basically put your life together. And so Daniel gratefully accepts. He has his own car, but he at this point he was walking on the road, so he wasn't driving it. So they arrange it and Daniel starts living with Walt. So after he moved in and they were talking, Walt learns a little bit more about Daniel And Daniel was born in Alabama, and he was raised by his grandmother. He grew up in the church, and he was a youth pastor, but he had his daughter when he was 16, and then she passed away before he was 21. Mm -hmm. And so that drove him to drugs and alcohol, unfortunately, and so he kind of just lost his way in that grief and in those addictions, and He moved to Chatsworth, Georgia, which is where he had a car. So he had Georgia license plates and then he found himself in Western North Carolina. Um, But while he was in Georgia, he did get in trouble in 2005 and in 2006 for theft. So like he kind of had a rap sheet and Walt didn't seem to care about that. He just wanted to help him out. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Daniel was also gay, so it could have been, like, one of those things where it's like, oh, I see, like, a young gay man who could really need some help. I'm going to basically become the wind beneath your wings. I'm going to find you there, you know? Yeah. So, unfortunately, on October 11th, 2012, this was a Thursday... His co-workers at the Esmeralda Inn grew antsy because Walt had not shown up for work in two days. That was Wednesday and Thursday. And so after their shift on Thursday, about midday, they drive down to Walt's house because they knew that Daniel was staying there and they didn't want to get the police involved just in case. Mm -hmm. And when they got to his house, they opened the door and there was blood everywhere. Mm -hmm. They called the police, the police arrived, they took in the scene, started questioning people. According to the coroner's report, Walt died from blunt force trauma to the back of his head with multiple blows inflicted by a claw hammer. Mm -hmm. And it did seem like he did try to fight back as well. He had started in the living room. And then the trail there led to his bedroom where there was a sliding door that would lead to outside. So it looked like he was trying to get outside the back entrance. Mm -hmm. They determined that he had died just after midnight on Monday, October 8th. Their time was very precise. They said 1201. So I had to assume that there was something like a broken clock or something in the house. That mm-hmm. indicated that's the time he died.
0: I have absolutely no idea how they would be able to tell that. Unless Me they either. were thinking, like, we think he died around this time and more Tuesday than Monday. I don't know. That's confusing.
1: Yeah. So that means he didn't ha- he wasn't scheduled to work on Tuesday mm-hmm. or Monday, I guess. I I can't help but wonder if it just from things that happened later. I can't help but wonder if it was Tuesday at 1201. Not Monday at 12.01. Yeah. I'm... My gut is saying Tuesday at 12.01. I'll go with your gut. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't work on Tuesday, and then he didn't show up for his shifts on Wednesday and Thursday, and he was found Mm -hmm. Thursday around 2 o'clock, and this was October 11th. So the whole town was shocked because this was a relatively quiet, peaceful area I don't know if you've ever heard of Cave. I think that that was
0: one of the places we like did. I don't know. We've done some quizzes on like
1: town names in the South. And I feel like that was probably one of the places. And we have actually driven through it when we went to go visit my father. Oh, okay. I'm with you. Yeah. So the Walt's co-workers at Esmeralda Inn held a celebration of life service for him at the inn. And then his ashes were spread in the grassy creek, which is the creek that ran by his house. Mm -hmm. So the police questioned a few people, not interrogating, questioning, and they started with his neighbor, Russell. And he said that he had seen an unfamiliar car with Georgia license plates parked outside of the house. And this was eventually believed to be Daniel's car. And found out to be Daniel's car. And Russell's son, Josh, had gone to the house on Friday, October 5th, around 7 p.m., where he had met Daniel in the house. He had intended to return a movie to Walt, but Daniel said that Walt was working. And so instead of like giving the movie to Daniel, Josh was like, OK, I'll come back later. So it was that uh he went initially on friday and then he returned mm-hmm. sunday october 7th so maybe it was 1201 monday it probably was monday 1201 not tuesday he must not have worked monday or tuesday then
0: wait so people were at the house okay so we're saying that it potential people were like looking for him before that
1: yes before sorry i'm okay. i'm leading up to a point sorry okay So um, when Josh went back on Sunday, October 7th, he did speak to Walt and return the movie. And he said that he got the vibe that he, Walt and Daniel had been arguing because Walt was normally a pretty talkative guy, but he seemed reserved that day and there was like tension in the house. Okay. And if he did die Monday, October 8th at 1201, then that would mean that would be the night that he died mm-hmm. okay so russell the the father of the neighbor said that on monday and tuesday he passed the house on his way to work and walt's car was gone but as if he had gone to work but daniel's car was there mm-hmm. but presumably he was already dead at this point So, I guess Daniel took the car. I'm not sure. But then Mm -hmm. when he went by on Wednesday, the Georgia car was gone and Walt's car was there. Okay. So, pretty quickly, the police suspected Daniel. I mean, at the very least, Uh, he's a witness. I strongly assume that they would. Yeah. At the very least, he's a witness. Mm-hmm. So they started searching for him and they found him around 2 a.m. October 12th. So the day after he was found near Fletcher, North Carolina, which was basically the next town over. Mm-hmm. And he was driving his car and he had bloody. Shoot, like his shoes were bloody and he had Walt's computer bag in his trunk. Okay. so they were able to arrest him on larceny and possession of stolen property because he had the the laptop bag. Mm -hmm. And that was enough to keep him in jail long enough to get his story and collect evidence. Mm -hmm. So Daniel was kept at the Henderson State. I'm sorry, Henderson County Detention Center. His bond was set at 20,000. He was listed as homeless on the report. And since Mm -hmm. he didn't have any money, nor anybody to pay the money for him, he remained in the detention center. Okay. So the police wanted to get more evidence before they officially charged him for murder. And this is where there are two sides of the story. Mm -hmm. Because Daniel pretty much confesses immediately That he was indeed the one who killed Walt. Okay. However, the police want to get him on first or second degree murder. The police believe that he did this out of theft or like a fit of rage. The police believe that he just attacked Walt. And I'll get more into the details in a second. And then left. He was claiming it was self-defense. Okay. So here is Daniel's side of the story. Mm -hmm. Daniel says that Walt had tried to sexually assault him. Mm -hmm. And when it was happening, he grabbed the nearest thing he could, which happened to be the claw hammer, and started hitting Walt with it, trying to get him off of him. Mm -hmm. And it worked. And then Walt grabbed him again by the front of his shirt. And so he had to continue hitting Walt with the hammer. And then once Walt was no longer moving, he was afraid of Walt's ghost haunting him. And so he ran out of the house immediately and never looked back. Mm hmm. That is inconsistent with the witness testimonies and the evidence. The cars? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So the police believed the actual story was a little bit more like this. They believed that Walt and Daniel had been arguing because Walt said... Well, Walt had been intending for Daniel to... I don't know how best... Sorry. While Walt was intending for Daniel to live with him to get back on his feet, what Mm. was happening was Daniel was just kind of sitting around the house and doing drugs all day. I got you. Yeah. And so Walt was like, theoretically, this was not proved because we don't know what happened between them. But it's Mm -hmm. theorized that Walt was getting upset with Daniel and saying, you need to get out of this house if you're not going to try to do something for yourself essentially. Yeah. And that was what caused the fight and they believe that was the motive behind Daniel going up behind Wall striking him in the back of the head. Wall like feels the back of his head, his hand comes back bloody, tries to push Daniel away and Daniel continues attacking him. They're struggling, they're fighting, they're making it towards the back bedroom as Walt is trying to get away. And unfortunately, Walt succumbs to his wounds and mm. does die. And Daniel tries to clean up the crime scene, realizes that it's too messy for him to do so. And so he may or may not live in the house for a couple of days. Before he finally leaves and heads out of town. So these are two very different stories. Let me walk you through the evidence a little bit. mm -hmm. The first thing that the police saw when they came in was blood everywhere. And the blood supports the police theory. Because in Daniel's story, he's saying it kind of all happened in the living room. Mm -hmm. But... In reality, it was very clearly moving through the house. I've got you. So the second thing is the wounds on Walt. He mostly sustained wounds to the back of his body. That's indicative of somebody coming up behind you. You wouldn't reach around to hit the back of somebody if they were attacking you. You'd hit them in the face. You know, mm. so the wounds on Walt's body suggested that Daniel had come up behind him and started attacking him rather than Walt attacking Daniel first. Another thing was the crime scene looked like it had been attempted to be cleaned up. So they found bloody towels everywhere as if he had tried to clean it up a little bit, but realized that it was too much and just kind of moved on. Mm-hmm. Another thing was the enormous amount of bloody footprints in the house. I forget. I have the exact number written down. 83. So there were 83 bloody footprints that they were able to find. And with the neighbor's story about the cars, they and the fact that Daniel was found in the next town over within 24 hours of Walt's body being found, they believe that mm-hmm. Daniel had stayed at the house after Walt had died. Okay. There was two more things that were kind of evidence in this situation. One of them, they're currently missing, and that's the murder weapon. Mm-hmm. So before I get into those things, I just want to clarify something real quick. If it was indeed self-defense. hmm What Daniel should have done to be able to get a self-defense plea, Mm -hmm. once he realized that he had killed Walt, immediately call the police and let them know what happened. Mm -hmm. However, since there's evidence of the crime scene trying to be cleaned up the towels, then the police are able to pursue a second or first degree murder charge. However, the towels themselves are not enough because you could argue that maybe he was trying to do first aid or something like that. hmm If you're a good lawyer, that's probably what you would try to argue.
0: I mean, you could also argue initial self-defense and then panic.
1: Yeah, yeah. So they had to find something that indicated he was being a little bit more methodical or logical about what was going on. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to rewind to October 9th, 2012. So, forgive me, this is after the killing? So, this is after the killing, but before Walt's body was found. I told you that there was that little creek that ran by his house. hmm On October 9th, 2012, my father and my stepmother went to this river... My father and my stepmother enjoy nature. That's one of the reasons why they live in this area. And my stepmother loves taking photos and like I've gone river walking with my father several times. And so on this day, they went out to Broad River. And my stepmom was taking photos and my dad was walking on the rocks that w- crossed the river. When my dad saw something, on the rocks. Mm-hmm. He gets closer and he sees that it's a cell phone and the back of the cell phone has been like blown off. And my dad picks up the cell phone, turns it over, and there's a bloody thumbprint on the back of the phone. Oh, oh mm hmm. So my father calls the police. Good move. Yeah, there's a a little bit of a mix-up because my father calls the police, but it brings him to the wrong county, and so like he has to call the non-emergency line for another county. But but eventually they get there. They mark it as evidence. They take photos. They take my stepmom and my dad's statements. They mm-hmm. seal it up. They're not really thinking anything's really going to come up of it, right? So they log the evidence. And while they're investigating Walt's case, they find this phone in evidence and they determine it to be Walt's phone.
0: I did not expect when you said you had a personal connection to uh-huh. this for it to be that
1: your dad found evidence. My dad found evidence. But wow. they, but okay. you know what? What? They said, oh, we found his phone in the river. I wonder what else we can find.
0: Mm. they
1: searched the river they found the bloody hammer yeah okay so because my stepmom and my dad decided to go to this river and saw the phone they were able to find the murder weapon wow yeah wow
0: so that's how you know about this
1: that's how i know about this case okay okay my dad has told me the story about how he found this so many times you know
0: Mm -hmm. almost I've heard this story.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And my father actually testified at the trial. Really? Yeah. So, like, I've heard about this story so many times, and it wasn't until I went to celebrate my little brother's graduation from high school. By the way, congratulations, Mm -hmm. little bro. Congratulations. Also, as we're recording on the 23rd, today's his birthday, so happy birthday, too. Happy birthday! (laughs) (laughs) So they were able to use this phone and the hammer being thrown over the porch of his house into the river as Mm -hmm. evidence that he was trying to hide the crime scene. Mm -hmm. And so when he was questioned, he's like, why did the phone end up in the river? He's like, Walt must have thrown it in. And it's like, no, no, no. There was blood on it. It doesn't make sense that he would try to attack you and then... Throw his own phone into the river? And then go back to attacking you. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense. And the fact that he threw the hammer, that also means, like, he was trying to get rid of the murder weapon. Mm -hmm. And there was one thing I forgot to mention. You know how in both stories I said that, like, there was a moment where Walt either grabs or pushes Daniel away? Yeah. Daniel did have a t-shirt on that had a bloody handprint on it. Mm -hmm. And that's why they were saying that. But if you grab fabric versus push fabric, it's a very different handprint that gets left behind. And the handprint that was left behind was more of a push than a grab. Mm -hmm. Which, I mean, you could argue that if he was being attacked with a hammer regardless of what was happening two seconds ago, he would have pushed you away. But Daniel's story said that he had grabbed him. Yeah. Yeah. Which he would have had to for self-defense to make sense. Mm -hmm. So during the trial, they did go to trial and because the police believed that they had enough evidence and they charged him with first degree and second degree murder Because I think they were trying to figure out which one would stick. Yeah. Okay. During the trial, Daniel was shown photos of the autopsy in the crime scene. And he had little to no reaction to seeing it. Mm -hmm. He confessed that he was high on cocaine, weed, and had drinking the day that he killed Walt. And, I mean, he straight up, like, confessed to being the one who killed him. It's just an argument of, I guess, why he killed them. Yeah. And he did say at the end of his trial, Pete Whitlock, the cousin, I'm sorry about everything that happened. I know what happened. Walt was a very good person, but he did try to take advantage of me. I'm sorry for your hurt. Still sticking by it. Yeah. Yeah. And I do want to throw in that here I wasn't going to mention it until I was talking just now and I realized like actually I kind of do want to touch on this a little. Walt was HIV positive because mm-hmm. we know of the AIDS epidemic that was happening back in, what was it? 70s, 80s, 90s? 80. 80s. I mean, yes. So he was HIV positive and unfortunately there is a very negative stereotype of HIV-positive gay men forcing themselves Mm -hmm. on other people. And so that's... Oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah, because the whole thing Mm -hmm. is like, well, they have... And I
0: knew there was, like, a stigma about it, a huge stigma, but I didn't know that that was, like, a specific stereotype.
1: Yeah. So it was kind of like the twist of the knife, the salt in the wound, that he was Mm -hmm. sitting here and accusing an HIV-positive gay man of sexual assault. It was just like, Mm -hmm. it just gives me the ick. Yep. I feel like that's an understatement. (laughs) The trial did go on for a week with, I think it was over 21 witnesses being pulled up to the stand. Most of it was like character witnesses for Walt. Mm -hmm. But on October 6th, 2014... Daniel was found guilty after the jury deliberated for two and a half hours of second degree murder. He was sentenced to 16 years and nine months in prison with two years time served for the time between him being arrested and the trial. Mm -hmm. So Pete, the cousin slash brother, not in a weird way, but in a raised way, he told Daniel... I will haunt you at every parole hearing you will attend, God willing. Referencing his earlier testimony that he had felt haunted by Walt, and so he left quickly. Mm -hmm. Pete says that he does not intend to let Daniel get out of jail earlier than the natural end of his sentence. So there are two more things I just want to add here about the hammer. One is something that confused me, and one is morbid-ish so the hammer was found in the same creek slash river system that they spread Walt's ashes in yeah and so theoretically his ashes could have just gone on by the hammer which is like weirdly poetic in a macabre way okay yeah every news article I read pointed that out so I was like okay I'll mention it too
0: i mean it is it is weird. you described it correct it is weirdly poetic in a macabre way maybe if you look at it from like a slightly uplifting angle it is his ashes going past the thing that would contribute to his killer getting it's not punishment
1: necessarily it's not judgment justice
0: Just him getting justice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, thank you.
1: Yeah, and then the other thing that I saw—only one article mentioned this—and so, Robin, do you remember Mm -hmm. in mock trial? Um, (laughs) Probably not. So, (laughs) there's something called a closing statement. Okay, yeah, I know what that is. Okay, and during the closing statement. I don't know if any objections are allowed. It might be like a few of them are allowed if the person says something totally out of hand, but you mm-hmm. you pretty much can't object to anything that is said in a closing statement. The closing statement is where you can just go wild and say whatever the heck you want.
0: Within um, reason, okay. I would say. Okay, I'm taking
1: your word for it. <laughs> um, at least if real life is anything like mock trial. I don't know about that. <laughs> I like... <laughs> I don't know about that. So according to one article I saw, mm-hmm. Daniel's attorney claimed that the hammer that they found did not have Walt's or Daniel's DNA on it. And if that's the case, that would mean... That was kind of like one of the big things that led the jury to believe that it was second degree murder, not self-defense. I mean, there were other things there. It wasn't like the only thing, but it was it was pretty big, you know, because it was like the one thing that Daniel wasn't able to really explain. So it seemed if that's true, I feel like that would have been brought up when you're questioning an expert witness about the lab works. Not just mm-hmm. mentioned in your closing statement. I mean Yeah, that's confusing.
0: I would also say I don't know if it's enough to wash everything away, but I mean it wasn't a river for days.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I don't also that.
1: I don't actually know how long it took between them finding Walt's body and them finding the hammer. Because I know my father found the phone before they found Walt's body. But I don't know how long it took for them to find the hammer.
0: I guess sometime after they found the body.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But that was just something I felt like if I didn't include, I would be misrepresenting the case. So I did want to add that on as a footnote here. And dear listener... If you go and read all of any of the articles I link to in my sources and you see the line that says the phone was found by a couple of hikers nearby, you now know those couple of hikers (laughs) were my father and my stepmom.
0: Wow. Yeah. I am like, I I did not expect that to be like the the connection to this, but good for them for being hikers and avid photographers and curious people yeah and uh also civically responsible
1: yes people because yeah. they could have easily been <laughs> like could have been, that's weird been like,
0: i'm not touching that that's blood you know
1: yeah so but no they were like no we gotta let the police know about this. good good for them well that is the life and death of walt davis thank you very much it
0: sounds like he was really really like beloved in his community and mm-hmm. it's It's so deeply sad that, like, in a lot of ways, his life began this way Mm -hmm. with this kind of tragic in-home death from at least somebody you trusted, though it's not the same, and then ended in this way, too. Yeah. But it's very clear that he had a lot of people who cared about him and had a full life in in between those things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was definitely, like, a pillar of the community. He Mm -hmm. was well-loved. And I feel like him being a gay man in the South and also being well-loved that just Mm -hmm. like, it's like, he's a little hero to me, you know? Yeah. That connection that you made. I saw it in the articles because in both the discovery of his parents and discovery of his body, individuals called it a bloodbath. They used that same word to describe both scenes. And I was just like,
0: Oh, that's so sad
1: it gets you in the feels it does
0: and the coworkers who had to go and see this and then hold the celebration of life and i'm glad it was a celebration of life yeah but at the same time that that in itself must have been really hard to, yeah. to just go
1: from one thing to the other like that i don't know so we haven't done this before but would you like to have a drink to walt i would i would thank you do you have a drink to, to walt, walt clink
0: thank you very much for the story you're welcome everyone if you appreciated today's episode please rate subscribe review tell a friend and subscribe to our patreon at patreon.com slash haunted hospitality for just three dollars a month you get a new episode with us
1: yes and it comes out on the 13th because we're spooky um if you want to see my sources you can head over to hauntedhospitality.wordpress.com. though i do want to put an asterisk in this episode that some of the information included in this was from a direct interview with my father, a.k.a. Mm-hmm. my father telling me stories while I was in the car with him. So um, <laughs> some of this information you won't be able to find, find online. Um, mm-hmm. If you have your own spooky story, you can write to us at hauntedhospitalitypodcast at gmail.com, or you can slide into our DMs.
0: Yes, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at Haunted Hospitality. We're also on Twitter at Haunted House. Hope to see you there. Stay Stay spooky. spooky.